And what began to emerge was a global movement, women calling us and saying, oh, well, you know, we've got our Vital Voices chapter here in Haiti. And then there's uh, you know, a chapter in Nigeria that pops up, a chapter in, in Kuwait to help women gain the right to vote. And you began to just see this momentum that had a life of its own was something that all of us should care about, elevating the voices of women who are solving some of the world's greatest challenges. That is Elise Nelson, president and CEO of Vital Voices, and a tireless champion of emerging women leaders around the world. I'm Milan Verveer, and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We are bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. All around the world, there are women who have a vision for change. Vital Voices, led by Elise Nelson, is providing the mentoring, training, networks, and support to ensure the vision of these women becomes a reality. Thanks to Elise's leadership, Vital Voices has reached more than 18,000 women leaders across 182 countries. She is author of the book, Vital Voices, The Power of Women Leading Change Around the World. I've had the pleasure of knowing and working with Elise for many years. Listen and learn why Elise Nelson is one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. Well, Elise, it's so great to have this chance to uh, have a conversation with you today. Uh, And I thought we could start by your explaining what Vital Voices is. Well, it's a pleasure to join you, Milan. Uh, always, a, always a pleasure to hear your voice and connect with you and certainly around the issues that both of us care so much about. So Vital Voices has been around, as you know, for 23 years, founded on the heels of the UN Fourth World Conference on Women. And what we do today is we search the world for women who have a daring vision for change. It could be working to stem the tide of human trafficking um, in her country. It could be to start a new business that is going to come up with the bold new technology to mitigate uh, climate change. Uh, It could be to educate girls in her community in a way that has never been done before. Uh, And what we do when we make these investments is really help her to take that vision she has, that daring vision to scale in her community. So she's already doing extraordinary things. We're investing in her through training, mentoring, and network of her peers, uh, financial support, visibility, and credibility. We've thus far invested in more than 18,000 women across 182 countries around the world. And I think the biggest thing that we learned um, over our time is that you know, change doesn't happen overnight, even in this, you know, as you know well, in this you know, 24-7 constant news cycle and information uh, world, change still is the thing that, that does take the time and the work. And that's the way we approach any of these investments in different women leaders is we are with them for the long run. We know that, and we've done research around this, that it takes often 1.8 years of investment before a woman really achieves that bold vision. And we've, we're working all the time to accelerate that. But you know, we know that when, ultimately we know change does take time. Well, I know that their voices are vital and they are on the front lines of change all over the globe. 
tell our listeners how Vital Voices came into being and how it's evolved over time. Yeah, so I think, you know, at its core, I always feel that, you know, Vital Voices is about those who have power and voice and influence giving power um, and empowering others. And, you know, I, I, I think our roots, of course, go back to that faithful trip that, that uh, you took alongside uh, then First Lady uh, of the United States, Hillary Clinton, which was very brave because, of course, many people 25 years ago did not want you and she uh, to travel to the Beijing Fourth World Conference on Women, which was the largest gathering of women ever in history. And I think people don't recognize today how critical it was. But so in 1995, this idea of gathering women and women's voices was, uh, was bold, was exciting, was, was rare. And I think she certainly became so ignited um, from that experience and came back wanting to get to work, wanting to make sure that our government um, really took seriously um, those commitments that we signed on to the, the platform for action and 12 critical areas of concern, which remains one of the most progressive um, documents for women ever signed. And from, from those early days of, of Secretary Clinton really getting ignited, um, and obviously she's dedicated her life to these issues, working alongside you and a group of others, including uh, Ambassador Swanee Hunt, I was there, of course, I was about 12, but <laughs> um, in those early days at the White House and the State Department, uh, Madeleine Albright becoming Secretary of State. And I think just this, you know, this, this perfect nexus of really powerful women um, in positions of power and saying, let's use this to elevate the voices of women around the world. Vital Voices, honestly, one's supposed to be a uh, a long term project. It was a one off conference in the beginning to amplify the voices of women in Central and Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union um, during a critical time for those women. But it 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 spread like wildfire. Women around the world started calling our office in the State Department, and of course uh, to you and, and to then First Lady Hillary Clinton in the White House and saying, you know, you've got to bring vital voices to Northern Ireland, to Latin America, to Africa. And really, I think that I'm, it, it's so unusual in many ways, the way that vital voices was created because it was created for and because of these women leaders around the world who were truly charting a new course, but were not household names. Um, and and many of them, their life was uh, was under attack for the bold leadership, which was not so bold. It was about educating girls, right? I mean, something that in many places is commonplace, but in Afghanistan or elsewhere, it was not. And uh, so, so Vital Voices really created as first this one-off conference that women around the world were clamoring to have brought to their communities. And so we picked up and went to these various places around the world. And what began to emerge was a global movement, women calling us and saying, oh, well, you know, we've got our Vital Voices chapter here in Haiti. And I just wanted to let you know, we're doing a big conference. You don't need to come. <laughs> we just wanted to let you know. And then there's uh, you know, a chapter in Nigeria that pops up, a chapter in, in Kuwait to help women gain the right to vote. And you began to just see this momentum that had a life of its own. And it became very clear that this can't remain in the U.S. government. It's 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 about all of us coming together. And of course, Hillary Clinton so wisely immediately reached across the aisle to Kay Bailey Hutchison and Nancy Cassabon Baker, two 
you know, women senators who are very well respected and brought them into the fold, understanding that this also couldn't be about one, you know, political party or the other. It was something that all of us should care about, elevating the voices of women who are solving some of the world's greatest challenges. Um, and so we, we rolled out to become a nonprofit in 2000. I was the proud first employee with an army of 10 interns. Um, and then, of course, you came over as the, the chair of the board and, and, and later as the CEO. You know, I'm a product of Vital Voices, so I believe in it. And, you know, I have, I have been with the organization so long because I continue to have great opportunities and I've been mentored into the role of, of being CEO. And uh, I, I couldn't have done that without having so many incredible women mentors like you, Milan, and so many of the women around the world, Inez McCormick in Northern Ireland, women that we've really learned those core lessons in leadership from. Well, I, I, it's such an interesting evolution when I think back, because it did start, as you said, Elise, uh, as a government program. And I remember so well how the women uh, who became part of it in those early years really valued being able to reach across their physical borders, their geographical borders, and learn from each other, learn what was working, and how it, it just grew them immensely. But you also mentioned a very important word, and that's mentoring. And even at the earliest time in those formative years, uh, when it was a government program, a State Department program, it was women with expertise in the United States who volunteered to use that expertise uh, to help women who uh, were coming out of the former Soviet Union and learning about no longer a command economy, but how to build a business, how to be a, a citizen and hold government accountable. and. I, since our listeners are very active women and men too, but very active listeners, I wonder if you could talk about how that mentoring feature uh, worked because we had amazing women from across the United States really investing in these women from around the globe. Well, you know, I think there's a there's something really interesting that's happened, you know, in the last couple decades, and it's that women women in this country and quite frankly around the world have risen into positions of power and leadership they never thought possible. They are the first ones to break through those barriers. And what I have seen again and again and again is that the moment a woman does that, the moment she breaks through and achieves something she never thought possible, she immediately turns around and says, "Okay, who can I who can I bring into the fold?" And so as you think about engaging women, they don't just want to write a check. You know, women really want to give back and they want to, they want it to be a meaningful experience. And sometimes it's not just in their own backyard. But I think where we've come in is we've channeled that incredible energy of women, uh, business leaders, you know, entrepreneurs into supporting and uplifting this next rising generation in this country and around the world. And I think what's been fascinating is that as we've built out a number of different mentoring programs, chief among them, of course, our Global Ambassadors Program, which you've been involved in um, with, with Bank of America. And I think really what we've seen is that the mentors in many ways gain just as much as the mentees. Um, they recognize how much they have to give. Um, they learn about, obviously, a different world. 
they see the power of leadership and the power of teaching a different model of leadership, this model where it is about service. And you can imagine if you are a, a, a young woman who maybe has never traveled outside of your country, and all of a sudden you are linked with a top executive um, who has a global Rolodex, you know, it is that sort of borrowed social capital that now you are gaining. Um, but also the fact that this woman is going to spend time on you um, and, and, and lend her credibility that she's got skin in the game um, in really supporting you and, and your trajectory. And that, that just speaks volumes to these women. It gives them an incredible sense of confidence and it teaches them that leadership is about seeking power to empower and give back. It's true. So many of the young women who are mentored actually go home and start mentoring programs of their own in places that really never had experience with this concept. And I also think the other point you made is one worth reinforcing, uh, which is how often the mentor gains so much. Yes, we know the mentee does, but so does the mentor in terms of the rewards that come from doing that. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear will be back after this short break. You mentioned Beijing and um, what it catalyzed in terms of a a women's movement in many ways uh, around the globe. But I also happen to know, Elise, that it was your inspiration as well. And maybe you can talk a little bit about your adventure as it was. A college student determined that she was going to go to Beijing. But why don't you pick up from there and tell us how it influenced you? Yeah. um, It's so funny. You look back on your life and you wonder why you made these very crazy moves and decisions. And I think that's, that's one of the gifts of youth, right? Is that something catches you and you don't know it's a little crazy. <laughs> so I, um, of course, this is before the internet really took off. Um, so if you wanted to learn about global women's issues, you had to go there. You had to, to travel across the world to meet women and learn. And, you know, I think for me, I, I was fascinated by women's issues I was just sort of desperate to understand, you know, my place in the world. I also knew that, you know, they were talking about how my generation was going to be this first global generation and the global economy was coming. And I wasn't sure what that meant, but I knew that it meant I couldn't just be aware of, you know, the four walls or the, you know, where I lived. I needed to to reach out beyond. And I just completely randomly found out about the Beijing Women's Conference. And honestly, it was by calling the UN. And honestly, Milan, I can't even remember why I, you know, in my college dorm room was calling the UN. But you know, I was I ended up talking to this very nice woman. And she said, well, do you know about the Beijing Women's Conference? It's happening in Beijing, China. There's going to be thousands of women coming. You know, just go on, um, go and, you know, go and request this information, fill out your, your, um, your paperwork to go. And, uh, oh, you have an NGO, right? I'm like, oh, sure. Yes, I do. And I didn't even know what an NGO was. I had to then figure out what is it the word NGO mean? Of course, it's non-governmental organization. So I made up, sadly, I yes, I did. I made up an NGO that I was part of. Now, naturally, when my papers got to the Chinese Organizing Committee, like many other activists, they did not recognize my NGO. 
or thought, who is this person coming alone? Um, we're not going to give her a visa. So I never received the paperwork back saying you're registered. So, you know, I was booking my ticket, planning my trip and saving my money and the whole thing and bought the cheapest ticket I could find. But I didn't have the right kind of visa to go. And I would go every single day down to the, um, the Chinese consulate in Los Angeles, where I was staying at my parents' house. And I go down to the consulate, drive down there every day, and just, I demand, it's, you know, my voice will be heard. My dad's like, maybe not a good idea. <laughs> and finally, I think this, uh, um, you know, consulate uh, guy came up to me and he said, listen, um, meet me around the corner in 20 minutes. I'm like, okay, that's kind of weird. But, you know, I really want to go to this conference. So I, I met him around the corner. He says, listen, you're never going to get a visa because they're trying to keep people out. So what you should do is apply for a tourist visa and say you're going to Shanghai and you're just going as a student, um, you know, just going to learn. And then, you know, give us sort of a fake reservation, then fly over there. And try and get into the conference. And it'll probably work out because believe me, they don't want angry women on the streets. <laughs> so, you know, all this to say, it was difficult to get to get to the conference. This is exactly where I wanted to be, you know, just surrounded by everything. I'm going to learn so much about these issues. And, you know, I think at a certain point, you know, after you know, seeing a sign that said, stop human trafficking in women and thinking, what is that? What is trafficking in women? Is that a disease? You know, I mean, really... Thinking back, I was learning about all these issues, as were we all. You know, you think about it, that was not a mainstream issue back then. I mean, it was very much on the margins, very much underground, um, the issue of human trafficking, uh, but so many other issues. And um, I think at a certain point, it really hit me like, wait a minute, why did I feel compelled to come? All of the women who are here, they're already activists. And they know about these issues and they didn't come to learn. They really came to fight. And what's my role in this? And I remember the very last day of the conference, um, uh, Hillary Clinton was coming to speak. And so I w got up early, waited in line. It was raining cats and dogs as it was really the whole time. Um, and I'm in line and the line is getting tighter and tighter as people are pushing and pushing to get into this tiny auditorium because they had to move her speech from the outdoor amphitheater to an auditorium of maybe, I don't know, a thousand people. And, you know, I ended up getting into a little side chamber so I could hear that famous speech, but I couldn't see it. And, you know, I just remember, you know, I, I recorded it on my little like video camera, you know, those little old video, like Betamax video cameras. I recorded it, but obviously just the sound. And you really could hear like, you know, a pin drop. I mean, everybody was just transfixed with every word. And I realized as I was sitting there, this is your answer. This thing came to me and it was like, you know, you don't have her voice, but here's a woman who recognizes she has voice and voice is power and she can use that to empower. And no one else was speaking about these issues um, in, a, in, in a real way in the media. The media was very focused on, oh, you know, China hosting a human rights conference and they're violating women's human rights. They weren't really talking about the main substance of the conference or some of the big outcomes. And then that bothered me because I thought, you know, young people in my generation were supposed to be this global generation, yet we don't know about these issues. And so I desperately wanted to figure out how, how do I educate? How do I bring this home? And I think I really got my answer listening to, to Secretary Clinton because I thought, you know, I don't have her 
big, bold, you know, first lady of the United States voice, but I have a voice and I have a community at my university and I can go back and I can shout this message from the rooftops. So it's an interesting saga of a young woman's determination and how it affected the rest of your life, really. And just to fill in the blanks a little bit, you were with these tens of thousands of women learning and uh, appreciating the kinds of work that they were doing all around the globe. So let's talk about these women and the women of Vital Voices, because in many ways, they are one and the same. They are people who are deeply committed uh, to try to make a difference in the world. Tell us a little bit today about how women see themselves, find themselves. Uh, For example, how has COVID impacted them? We know that it's had a very disproportionate impact on women. It's exposed inequalities. How has it, in all of the places that they live, how has it impacted their work? Yeah, well, it certainly had a huge impact. Um, So I think uh, first and foremost, we run a a fund. It's an emergency assistance fund uh, for women who are victims of extreme forms of gender-based violence. And in the beginnings of COVID, and we knew what happened in China with this huge rise of violence against women, particularly domestic violence, with that sort of perfect formula uh, to breed gender-based violence, domestic violence of being locked down, and then this anxiety of a global pandemic and a and a and a economic um, shutdown, and and what that would breed. And so we knew there was there will probably be more cases, and um, sure enough, that is exactly what we have seen. So we have a network of leaders around the world um, who've been part of Vital Voices for many years, been trained by us, known very well by us. And the way that this fund works is when they come across a case of extreme forms of gender-based violence, they can request, um, quite frankly, a small sum of money um, that we can get out to them within 24 to 48 hours to provide services and support um, to to these these women who've been who who are survivors of of terrible violence and you know i mean the numbers are just extraordinary we don't have nearly enough to deal with all of the the cases and things that we're seeing the rise of femicide um, and i think you know just it's very telling, you know, we, op- we open up at the beginning of each month, the fund, so much money in the fund, and it's gone within the first couple hours because there's so many cases and requests waiting for funding. On the other hand, you know, women are really good at, at making that pivot and doing things differently. And like we've partnered with um, our partners at Avon, they've run these wonderful ads um, and, and sort of cooking shows where they tell women to put on the headphones and then they give them information about, uh, about combating uh, domestic violence. And, you know, because obviously, how do you get information if you're in lockdown? And so I think that there's been a lot of creativity and a lot of innovation that this has sparked, both in, in that sense of combating violence against women, which we know is about on the rise of about 30% around the world on average because of, of COVID and the lockdown and so much uncertainty and anxiety and economic issue. And then on the other side, we know that obviously so many women have lost 
businesses and livelihoods um, because of it as well. And that's a place also where we really stepped in. We've made a um, a real pivot in all of our programming. So, you know, we'd have teams all over the world in different countries and communities doing programs usually. Obviously, all of that had to stop. So we had to quickly go online and offer more, actually, not less, more, because we knew that businesses are in crisis political leaders are, you know, facing issues they, they never thought they'd have to face. Um, and not only did we find that the, they needed more support, more training, um, we built a Voices of Resilience Fund. Uh, we started a podcast where we had daily voices of what was going on and how were they dealing with it, but also what were those glimmers of hope that they were that they were seeing. And so I think, you know, we're now stabilizing a bit, but I think if there is a real focus, and I think this is quite positive on how women led during the crisis. Is I've, of course, you've talked about on this podcast and some of the other Seneca podcasts about the critical role that women have played from New Zealand um, to Germany to around the world, the heads of state, frontline healthcare workers that are predominantly women, um, how they have thrived. And I think that the world has taken note. And I don't know if the history books will give that piece any credit when we think about how we just elected a, a, the first ever woman vice president um, in this country and a woman of color, a Black and South Asian American woman. Um, and I wonder, are the two correlated? And obviously, it's too early to know. But the, you know, the the movements of what's gone on in 2020 that was supposed to be, you know, this historic time to celebrate 25 years after Beijing and um, you know, a hundred years since women, although not all women, gained the right to vote. Um, you know, in this country, we had thought it would be a time of celebration. Actually, it's been a time of introspection. But what I see coming out of of that introspection and, and pain, quite frankly, I don't want to under underestimate that. You know, um, tremendous loss. But I think we're coming out of that a bit now. Although, you know, COVID is still raging, as we know around the world. Um, and I think really seeing more clearly the powerful role that women play as leaders and how women really do lead differently and how desperately needed that difference is in our world today, the compassion, the empathy, the collaboration, the bringing in the experts, the listening that I think women do so well. And there was a recent study that came out that, that um, talked about how one of the biggest differences between male and female leadership um, is actually that women never stop asking for feedback, no matter how senior they get. And if you think about the world we're living in, there's like no leader has all the answers. So that's absolutely critical. So tell me, Elise, what are the other big issues for women that need to be addressed right now? And what gives you hope? I would say violence against women full stop is a huge problem around the world. It is the greatest problem, in my opinion, that we continue to face um, globally. And it's obviously holding us back, right? Because there is such a huge cost um, to all of this uh, in terms of just straight up economic costs, but just costs of, of lives and, and livelihoods. And, you know, I would say, I think um, what gives me hope on the issue is you know, the women leaders that we work with, I just give one example of an incredible woman we work with, Priti Pakhtar, who's based in the red light district in Mumbai, India. And uh, 
She's extraordinary. And I have visited her shelter a number of times now. She basically began to see this issue of human trafficking and how it was so intergenerational. You'd have the grandmother, the mother, and the daughter all together there um, in the red light district. And it was something that they just couldn't get out of. And, you know, people, I think, often think of human trafficking and people in like physical chains, but they were in chains of like in cages that had been built up over generations that they just never knew there was any other option. Um, And there's so much violence and intimidation, there was no way out. And she wanted to figure out how do I stop this intergenerational cycle? And so what she did was she created a night shelter for the, the children of women who were part of the red light district. And normally what would happen is two things. Either the the young child would come and would, you know, be part of um you know the the serving the the um the John or or they would be drugged and put under the bed. Those were the two options she said, right? So either they're like the warm-up act or the or the under the drugged under the bed. I mean, can you imagine, you know, and so what, what other life do you see for yourself if that's the way you've grown up? And so what Pretty created was a shelter where women could bring their children in the evening and they come there, they're given dinner, they do their homework, they have all kinds of different dance and drama and art and activities. They sleep there in a safe place. Um, the next day they have a good warm breakfast and they're taken to school. And so, you know, she makes sure that they have those things. But what she knew is that if she, as a woman not from the red light district who did not grow up in this, tried to intervene and say, well, just stop doing that, that wouldn't work. And I think, Milan, as you, I'm sure, have learned as well, that is the greatest lesson that I have seen is that no matter how much we want change, change is not going to happen by an outsider coming in. You can only change what you know. And so she has been doing this for 35 years. And as you and I both know, there was no word for human trafficking 35 years ago. There were no laws, nothing, no awareness, nobody cared. And also because this had been the way it had always been, you know, it was, it wasn't questioned. I just think of her as she's a, she's a a saint who walks among us, um, just day in and day out doing this incredible work and just changing the lives of thousands of children um, who've gone on and broken out of that of that cycle. Elise, this has been just a, a wonderful reunion for me, but a terrific discussion. So thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you, Milan, so much for having me. And thank you for being the incredible role model, mentor, and shining light to me and so, so many others around the world. I get so inspired by Elise, by her energy, her empathy, and her determination. Here are three things that resonated with me from our conversation. First, as Elise tells us, investing in women is one of the best things that we can do as a society. The Women Vital Voices supports are tackling some of the world's greatest challenges and their solutions will benefit everyone. Second, women's leadership is important. The qualities that women bring to the table are the very ones we need to resolve today's problems and tomorrow's as well. Lastly, 
We can all learn from Elisa's insight about the nature of change. No matter how much we want change, it is not going to happen by an outsider coming in. You can only change what you know. When we recognize that and work with the people closest to the problems, we can all move forward. Tune in next Tuesday to hear about our next featured woman and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner P&G. If you like what you heard on the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. We hope you'll join us for our next episode of 100 Women to Hear, where we can all listen, learn, and get inspired. Have a great day.